Good morning. This is a very important episode. It covers a topic of great significance to a large number of people. And I believe the impact of this content will be profound. As I was reviewing this to edit it, I was traversing through when I realized that it's important to emphasize that it's extremely, and I do mean extremely, dangerous to attempt to tie anything around someone's neck at all without being professionally instructed in that practice by someone who is supremely competent. For that reason, mostly because if something does go wrong, it can go wrong extremely quickly. For that reason, I strongly advocate that you do not tie anything around anyone's neck unless, obviously, you have their consent, but unless you have been specifically instructed in how to do that by a professional. Some people use the word edge play. And when I say instructed, let me be clear. I don't mean I watched a YouTube video once. I mean, don't tie anything around anyone's neck in any way until you have attended multiple classes dedicated specifically to this topic in person, held by a person who is extremely experienced at this very specific thing. And they have stated clearly when you directly question them, can I now be considered safe to do this? They say, yes, you can now do this safely and consistently. That is the absolute minimum standard for that. To clarify further, I watched a YouTube video once on how to do neckties, so I'm going to do that now, is not an appropriate answer. The reason that I emphasize this is because if something goes wrong in this part of the process, it can go wrong very dramatically and very, very quickly. If someone has poor circulation in a hand or a leg, they feel a tingling, you untie them, no big deal. And you might have several minutes of warning, potentially, or even longer. But if something goes wrong with the flow of oxygen to the brain, things can get very bad very quickly. So just in summary, don't tie anyone's neck. With that in mind, you'll find the rest of this episode extremely insightful. Uh, it is an open-ended, semi-angry rant about how I disagree with the format and structures of rope education, uh, particularly their overemphasis on dogma and how I would teach a class on rope. One of the things I find very frustrating is how rope is taught, practiced, and then integrated into a larger process for creating super intense kink experiences. So I will present my thoughts on this. And at the end, I will do what I normally do at the start and tie this together in something useful. In order for us to understand my primary criticisms of the way that rope is taught, we have to understand well, I want to say Star Wars, but actually that's not, it's not really just Star Wars. So I need to talk about Darth Bane. And 
unless you are a giant nerd and have read the expanded universe models, um, <coughs> you probably won't have any idea who I'm talking about, and that's perfectly okay. But the short version is, he was a, a Sith Lord that existed thousands of years before the continuity of the films, who was the best lightsaber duelist that essentially ever lived. And the reason he was able to do that is because he looked at the way that things were being taught and he picked them apart in a fundamentally different way and then recombined them to make them much more efficient. So this episode is going to be kind of unstructured. It's just going to be me rambling. I've got a couple of points that I want to cover, but it's not even going to be in any particular order. Now, the way that he did it was by starting with simple moves. I will, I will try to explain this as best that I can. Please forgive me if it's not particularly clear. My, my brain works in a different way, and things that come very naturally to me, like different ways of thinking, are something that I have to try to translate for people that think more linearly. But when I was reading this, I was thinking, well, this makes perfect sense. And there's another primary influence of my thoughts on how rope should be taught, and that is the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Blue Belt Certification System. Um, and how the, the chains of that move through the total mass of total volume, I should say, of, of technique required to achieve that certification. So I will try to explain this as best that I can, but I will probably ramble a lot more than I usually do. Let me begin by describing the typical experience of a rope enthusiast. For some reason, they become very curious about learning to tie people. And when it comes to hypnokink, there are usually two primary reasons for this and I think they map across very well. The first is because they want to use rope because they like the rope itself. They like the, the symmetry of it or the asymmetry of it. They like the aesthetic of it, the way that it looks, the way that it feels, the sensory implications of the rope, the meanings that people pull from that. And I'll cover those two elements and how to expand upon them in an episode I'm putting out on how to use hypnosis and rope to create stupidly intense rope scenes like Oh, so good. I don't want to say everybody else is doing it wrong because that would be a, a statement that is not falsifiable or verifiable, but I haven't really seen a lot of other people doing it this way. And I'd like to present that as humbly as I can as a massively superior way of doing things. But that's for another time. This time is about why I think the way that people teach rope is fundamentally flawed. So... When it comes to coming into rope, there are people that love rope, and then there are people that want to use rope to create something that just happens to involve rope. Some people love trance for the sake of trance. They love everything about it, the shallow breathing, the, the little flickers of someone's eyes moving behind their eyelids indicate deep trance. They love, you know, the tropes, like the pocket watches and the spirals and all of the stuff, and they're, they're conditioned through association to be aroused by these things. And then other people like the idea of using hypnosis, but incorporating it into something that doesn't necessarily have hypnosis as the end goal. Like 
they want a, a better sex partner, so they'll use hypnosis to help her not to feel guilt in bed. Or they'll use uh, trance to condition her to be like a doll or a, a toy or a slave who feels no guilt so that they're able to have the experience with this person that they wanted to embed, but that's not necessarily about the trance, although those two things usually become tangled together in the most wonderfully delicious way. So two kinds of branches, people that want to do rope for the sake of rope, and then other people that want to do rope for the sake of creating a super intense experience that just happens to involve rope as a core part of creating that experience. Now, regardless of their fundamental motivation, these people go along, they probably watch some videos online, you know, read a book or two perhaps, perhaps do some self-tying at home for anywhere from months to years. Some cases I've, I've spoken to people, they're like, I'm so terrified to go to an event. And what typically happens when people are learning something new is they do go to an event. Um, let's contrast, well, there's a couple of major criticisms here that I find tend to overlap with my criticisms of most groups in general and how they're structured. But typically what happens is people enter as inexperienced newcomers. They smack really hard face first into a cliquish group of people that know each other really well and have already shared super intense experiences amongst each other. And then they either... See, it's very easy for me to, to see the branching paths here in my mind, but to explain them all in a linear format is a bit awkward, so please bear with me. They either smack hard into that, and then sometimes people compensate by having newbies events and having a dedicated welcome person to make them feel comfortable and blah, blah, blah. But then there's also the viewpoint that sometimes you have to push through an initial barrier of resistance to prove that you really want to do this. That makes sense. But I think initially that you should take the approach that they use in Fight Club, which is, well, I'm actually not actually advocating people employ that approach in necessarily in the creation of groups. I have to try to understand that people often take the things that I say like hyper literally. But what I'm talking about is the scene where he has the guy that wants to join his group and he makes him stand on the porch for days and he's about to leave. But then he goes back out and says, no, no, wait, wait here. And like, you know, you'll be fine. And he basically flips between characters where one of them will say, you should leave, and one of them will say, you should stay. And what I took away from that scene was that he would have left if he hadn't been given some indication that there was something more waiting for him after he'd pushed through that initial uncomfortable stage. <clears throat> and it's the same thing with rope. I think that people look at this and there does need to be a necessary minimum amount of motivation for them to continue coming along consistently. I would think of like, let's say five consistent classes as a good standard benchmark. Like if you can come along to five things in a row or three things in a row, then that proves that you're motivated about this. But you also have to give people reasons to be motivated for it. You can't just be like, oh, this thing is its own advertisement because that's not how that works. One of the reasons for the absolutely glacial pace of the spread of hypnokink, despite it being very powerful and very useful and very deeply enjoyable, adjunct to essentially every kind of human sexual behavior, is that it doesn't look good on film. And whenever people come into a group, 
it's incredibly clickish. Now the solution to this is not necessarily to have a welcome person and then to make this person feel good because what can happen then is they get a, a kind of shot in the arm of energy of coming into a group and being part of that group but then no one actually accepts them. No one actually builds anything. They're still mentally regarded as a newbie and so <clears throat> their motivation bleeds off because it's not being reinforced by the structure of the group or by the experiences that they are having. And then they basically drift away. And then eventually they drift around for a couple of years, they come back, they try again. But because they have that previous negative experience, statistically speaking, they're more likely to have some other negative experience than they are to have another positive experience strong enough to overwhelm the previous negative experience. And then they just kind of like drift in and out of rope, wanting to be a part of it, not knowing how to, having all of that cognitive dissonance and internal conflict of being pulled in two different directions, wanting to be tied, not knowing how to ask, missing fundamental skills, not knowing how to find partners, all this other stuff. Just It's just a fucking mess, right? And it's so dumb because it's so easy to fix this. And I'll talk more about that in the episode I have planned on like restructuring group dynamics to make them more welcoming for people and not so, you know, you have to be like us, think like us, dress like us, and already have like a medium to intermediate level of skill in this somehow, which you've magically acquired, even though you don't actually have any way of acquiring that outside of the pathway that we are presenting. And then we'll accept you. That's not really how that works. It's sort of like expecting people to be able to fly before you expect them to be able to crawl. And again, one of the biggest mistakes that people in organizing groups make. Now, because there's some pedantic fuckwit out there that's going to go, well, I had an amazing experience. I'm like, yes, look in the mirror. Are you an extremely attractive woman? If the answer is yes, or if you're an extremely attractive guy, your experience is not typical. Right? I'm not saying that you should feel guilty for being pretty. But I'm saying that if you get welcomed into new communities with open arms, it might not be just how wonderful a person you are. It might be that everyone wants to tie hot people or everyone wants to learn from hot people. The halo effect is a real thing. And I'm never going to criticize anybody for an implicit attribute that they are born with. If you're attractive, then you should maximize your attractiveness. And if you weren't born with, you know... <clears throat> supermodel good looks, then you should still maximize your attractiveness. Uh, you know, being born with one arm is not a handicap to people in the Paralympics, and it shouldn't be a handicap that you accept for yourself either, metaphorically speaking. But the typical pathway into rope, a lot of people bounce off of that. Part of it is the group structuring dynamics. Part of it is the yeah, there's a lot of different factors that feed into that, and I have developed solutions and countermeasures to most of those, or all the ones that I'm aware of, and I have conducted an extensive amount of study in this area. But we're talking about rope specifically today. So people come in, they have either a lack of good experiences or a couple of bad experiences, and, and bear in mind, it doesn't take much to push people away. I'm not saying that you have to literally spoon-feed them, you know, praise and reinforcement, but... You do need to create an environment as an organizer where those things tend to happen naturally, right? Now, if we look at all of this through an operant conditioning lens, we can immediately see how these pat, well, 
I'm sorry, I can, but if you can't, that's okay. Um, I'm very aware that people don't see things the way that I see them. Not that they have different perspectives, it's that I organize information in my mind in a fundamentally different way. And so if you can't follow what I'm saying, I'm not saying that I'm better than you, I'm just saying that I'm thinking differently. So if you can't understand what I'm saying, then get in contact with me and I'll try to use more examples. But this is the thrust of what I'm saying. So people come into rope, and if you look at the way that rope as an example is structured through an operant conditioning lens, every single person's typical response, as in their most statistically likely possibility of, of their response, maps perfectly onto this framework, like fucking flawlessly, one to one, right? You know, absence of positive reinforcement, lack of clarity around initial and intermediate goals. So let's look at this from a slightly more cynical perspective. Someone who has no experience in rope comes in, and rope is often, because it's the most visible and accessible, every city has rope classes, and if they don't, you should start one. But, you know, every medium-sized to large-sized city has rope classes. They don't necessarily have hypnokink meetups or anything more um, alternative. But rope is basically mainstreaming kink right now. Like, it, rope is what most people think of when they think of kink. Um... And so that's people like jumping on the biggest, not, not a bandwagon, but the, the biggest, most visible way to get started. So you're getting people that come in that have like, haven't accepted themselves as being potentially kinky yet. All right. There's a process that I've worked on for fixing that problem. Because you typically get a lot of those people coming in to rope classes because rope classes are the biggest, most visible, most generally accessible, as in they exist so they can be accessed. The way that they're structured internally is not designed to make them particularly accessible, but they are big and noticeable and not particularly difficult to go along to, and hence you get a lot of complete newbies. Now, that, that also brings into question, like, those are specific kind of people that may not have accepted themselves yet or may have a lot of internal conflict and guilt about wanting to do this or wanting to have this done to them. So provisions should be made, I would make them, for helping those people to work through those problems too. Let's take this from a more operant conditioning perspective. Someone is exposed to the existence of rope, they come into a class, they get taught, and I'm, I'm, I've been to several of these classes, and again, the, the dogma involved in this is just ridiculous. Let's discuss for a moment the differences psychologically and mechanically between Eastern martial arts and Western style martial arts. So one of the primary differences that's relevant to this conversation is that Western style martial arts are basically formed along the idea of you have two arms and two legs, what works? What, what, will, like, what will work in this situation, right? And this is essentially the, one of the real tangential benefits of the Ultimate Fighting Championship is that you had a bunch of guys that would sit on a mountaintop for 20 years mastering their chi or whatever, and then they would come in and get fucking cleaned up by guys that had done boxing for six months. And so one of my favorite video games of all time um, is The Elder Scrolls Oblivion. And there's this fantastic quote in the arena of that game, and it says, the best techniques are passed on by the survivors. 
right? Because it's basically a, a takeoff of the Roman gladiatorial arenas. Um, which, fun fact, resulted in people's deaths a lot less often than people think. Like, not every single battle was fought to the death. Anyway. Um, these are professional athletes that you're talking about at that time period, you know. So, the Ultimate Fighting Championship allowed people to use what works. And so what you've seen these days, and there's been different evolutions of the meta over the course of the existence of the UFC. It started off as like, you know, very much grappling heavy. And then when people learned to counter the grappling, it moved back into upright striking. And this is not an accurate summary of the meta game of the UFC, but I'm trying to illustrate that there are different evolutions that it's went, that's gone through over the course of its existence as people have used things that work and discarded what does not. Hence the, the quote, uh, take what works for you, discard ruthlessly what does not, contribute or add in what is uniquely your own, right? So stuff that didn't work, stuff that was excessively steeped in dogma was burned out of that crucible very early on in its development. The UFC being the crucible and the martial arts that didn't work being burned out. And so what you are left with is most people these days that do very well in the UFC have a mix of a strong striking in one or two or three, one or one of two or three different styles and a strong background in grappling or at the very least counter grappling. Um, and that seems to be to the best extent of my understanding, because I haven't followed the UFC for a few years now, uh, not religiously and not that I ever followed it religiously. I was more interested in the meta of it, but, um, that seems to be where they, the current like peak evolution of this is, right? You get guys that come in with a boxing background or a Muay Thai background or a kickboxing background and those things work. And then they add in something that covers their weaknesses like some Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or some Judo. And you end up with, with people that are very well matched physically and that are performing at what is the, what I would think of as the current evolution of the peak meta game of this sport. So, hypnokink is, well, fundamentally broken in basically every way. And I'll talk about that in a different, uh, different episode. But when it comes to the way that rope is taught, the differences between the success of Eastern style religion, uh, not religions, the Eastern style martial arts and the Western style martial arts in the EFC, in my experience, is that the Eastern style martial arts were too steeped in dogma. So for example, and I'm not entirely certain about this, whether it's Taekwondo or Kung Fu, but one of them has a very, very strong de-emphasis on the use of the hands because it was developed by farmers in Korea, from what I remember, who needed their hands to work. And if you couldn't work, you couldn't live. So you would defend yourself with weaponry or your legs, because your legs have bigger muscles and they're harder to break and you can still farm effectively even if you're on crutches or something. That was the understanding that I have. So when they went into the crucible that was the Ultimate Fighting Championship, a lot of those dogmatic traditions like burned away very, very quickly, right? They left things like, the things that remained were things like the discipline of studying Kung Fu or the the determination to strike in that way, but not the actual techniques so much. 
um, which is not a criticism of Kung Fu, don't get me wrong, blah, blah, blah. But it's the, the point that I'm trying to make is dogma can be useful, but nothing is above being questioned. Someone very much wiser than myself taught me when I was younger that, oh, what's the phrase? If it can be destroyed by the truth, then it deserves to be destroyed by the truth, right? And the truth is a complicated thing sometimes, but the reality is that Eastern martial arts traditions did not do particularly well in the UFC, I believe, because of their over-reliance on dogma. Rope, in many, many, many ways, has an identical over-reliance on dogma. Particularly, now, this is tempered by the necessity of ensuring the correct continuation of technique. Much like a lot of native cultures that did not develop um, written languages, or that lacked the tools to develop written languages, or the societal formations that would allow for the transmission of knowledge in a written form, they developed verbal storytelling traditions that had to be constantly error-checked for accuracy, very rigorously. Because if you've ever played the game Chinese Whispers as a kid, basically you sit in a circle as children and someone whispers a simple phrase, but they kind of whisper it in a slightly distorted way. And then you go around the circle of 10 or 15 kids and then the kid at the end says what they think the phrase is and the kid at the start says what the phrase actually was. And the idea is to show that even small distortions over time can have a huge effect on the, the changes in the meaning of the content of something. And so verbal traditions had to be extremely precise when it comes to enforcing the way that things were always done, which is why they tend to attract and be very attractive to the kinds of people that don't like questioning the way things are done. If I had a dollar for every hour of friction in my life that has been caused by me questioning the way that things are done, I'd have enough to buy a large private island or a small country. That's why I never liked those sorts of things. I never liked studying them or learning about them because my mind doesn't work that way. I, I want to question everything. The point is, everything should be able to be questioned, right? And the amount of bullshit, retarded dogma in the rope scene that is never able to be questioned is absurd. You have the metaphorical equivalent of one guy doing all the work, just grinding through it while carrying everybody else on his shoulders. It's absolutely absurd to me. I understand the necessity to maintain quality standards in teaching, but you do that in vastly more effective ways than by constricting the propagation of accurate information or by religiously controlling the, the amount of people or the locations that you teach in, right? You must travel to Japan and hike to the top of the mountain and meditate for a week. And no one will tell you to do this. You just have to like figure it out through the universe. And only then will the guru reveal himself. Fuck off. Now, I get that there are reasons for that, but I look at those reasons and I think how wildly inefficient and fundamentally invalid all of the ones that I've been able to discover are. There are other ways, more effective ways, to create honor within a system, 
than simply by punishing people who are trying to learn. In fact, if you look at an effective teaching model and you invert every single element of it, what you end up with is almost a perfect match for the way that rope is taught. Which is not to say that they're doing it backwards. It is to say fundamentally that you're taking basic teaching principles and concepts and models and then just fucking them up and then doing it that way. Right? And I could point to dozens of examples of this. But the biggest one that I can look at is dogma. And it is because of this dogma that when people come in to a new rope class with no background and no experience, they are taught a very, very small piece of what will become a larger body of knowledge. Now, this is sort of getting more into my criticisms of the conscious competence models. So for summary, um, there's a model of teaching which basically says you are unconsciously incompetent then you are consciously incompetent, then you are consciously competent, then you are unconsciously competent. And most people fallaciously draw this for some retarded reason in a circle as though it's a cycle and not a linear process. But to simplify that, you don't know that you don't know anything, and then you know that you know something but you can't do it, and then you can do it, but it takes a lot of effort and it's hard, and then you can do it and it takes a, lot, a little bit of effort and it's really easy. And the example that I usually use for this is learning to drive. I learned to drive in Victoria in a car park. And I remember like, you know, driving in a circle for about half an hour with my uncle. And having to think about all of these dozens of different things, you know, I'm checking around me, I'm maintaining awareness, I'm indicating, I'm looking, I'm you know, accelerator, gear change, all of this stuff. And then when you've done that for six months, you can hoon down the highway at 110 k's an hour in the rain with four other people in the car and the radio on and three people in the back on the phone having different conversations and be perfectly safe because you've, you've developed unconscious competence. Now, most people, the vast and overwhelming majority of people, when they talk about unconscious competence, they have no actual understanding or awareness of what their unconscious mind actually is, only that it exists, which now that I think about it, it's kind of ironic because what they're developing, what they're displaying is a, a conscious incompetence about how their own unconscious mind works. But <laughs> I find that really funny. Um, the point is that model is not a circle, it is a linear process. And when people come in, in my experience, to a rope class, they are not presented with what they will be able to do one day, should they choose to. They will not be presented with a clear experiential vision of what is possible in a way that's directed towards them, in a way that's intended to inspire them, right? They will instead be told to sit on their fucking butt and learn how to do a single column tie, right? They will learn to tie this on themselves, usually, because for some reason, that seems to be the way that things are done. So it's a little bit like trying to tie someone else's shoelaces in that it can be a little bit awkward because the angles are all unfamiliar. Now that tracks back to non-specificity of learning a skill. So let's look at sales general law of adaption or general principles of adaption. 
uh, as an understanding of this. So S-E-Y-L-E, -E, I believe it's spelled. But basically, when you do something, your body adapts to it and gets better at doing it, right? But it has to be specific enough that it provokes a specific adaption, right? Which is why you learning how to open doors with your hand by turning the doorknob really well doesn't translate across to improving your deadlift, right? Um, so teaching someone to tie a single column tie on themselves with no clear vision of what the end goal of it is. And again, people say, well, like, you know, the end goal is to produce art. I'm like, yeah, okay. Don't just show them a photograph or even most places won't even do that. It seems as though the way that rope people are taught is part of like an unofficial, incredibly fucktarded hazing ritual where you have someone who is really healthy and, and interested and has a healthy degree of enthusiasm about learning something gets just smacked in the face with you're going to get this wrong for the next 10 times right out the door, right? This is the opposite of how I would teach this. This is the fundamental opposite of how I would teach rope, right? Then... They're taught a series of ties that don't really relate to each other in a clear, logical flow, right? So you can think of it as a simple analogy, like being given a pile of Lego bricks and sort of asked to fit them together, but not really shown how they fit together, right? And you know they kind of do, but it doesn't have a natural... People, most people experience time in a linear way, right? A thing happens, then another thing happens, and another thing happens, right? So what they're looking for is a way of creating a rope experience, whether it's just about the rope itself or about using rope for a larger experience, that is, has a beginning and an end. And if you don't give them a way to put those pieces together in the right order, you either end up with what most people get is a huge amount of confusion, particularly initially, because I think, I think now that I think about what they're trying to teach is like that rope is formless and doesn't have to end until you've decided that it's ended. That makes sense. But that is an advanced way of looking at things. It's a way of taking like a non-temporal view of rope and then basically explaining it to someone whose entire perception of time is linear. You know, you will eventually be able to slip into what most people who tie don't even recognize as a rope trance. Um, basically everything that people feel and experience in rope experiences is directly correlated to trance phenomena. Which is why you can use trance to create astonishingly intense rope experiences. Because you're playing with a set of tools that map directly onto sensations, experiences, emotions that come at it from a different angle that most people are not even aware of, at least consciously. Some rope teachers will incorporate small elements that are usually riddled with dogma that just happen to coincidentally stumble across the same unconscious phenomena, but rarely, and, and to be honest, never have I actually seen anyone present with a conscious awareness of the operators that they are actually using unconsciously. So... That's the general flow of it. They're taught a single column tie or a double column tie. They fail a bunch of times. They walk away from their first class feeling dispirited and lonely because they're the most new person there. It's very likely that people won't even talk to them. 
they won't be really included. There's lots of different factors, but the end goal is they, well, the end result is that they walk away from this first experience, this initial exposure, i.e. Uh, feeling incredibly crushed, thinking that rope is incredibly difficult, when in fact, it is actually not that difficult, right? The way that it is taught is sort of like a variation of credentialism in many Western countries, right? It is not actually that difficult to do a lot of things, to, to be able to technically do them. Whether you have the personality and the temperament for them is something that is a little harder to change and a little bit more built in. But everyone who has two eyes and, well, actually, no, it would be, you'd need to have depth perception. Everyone, because I was just thinking about, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that had a car made for him. Where, because he was paralyzed, I can't remember, but he, he couldn't use his legs, so he had a car built, even though he couldn't use his legs, and it was just hand-controlled, um, custom-controlled, but I can't recall exactly which US president that was for. Anyone who has eyes and two arms can learn how to drive if they want to. And if you put a gun to their head, I'm pretty sure they could learn, right? It's the same with rope. Anyone who, and, and I would say that even the... the the need for eyes doesn't extend to people that want to learn to tie. A big component of the way that I would teach rope is to learn to tie blindfolded um, through feel. But that's a separate conversation. I think I might need to cover how I would actually teach rope in like a part two of this, this class. But they're taught a single column tie and then a double column tie and then they go home because it's been an hour and it's cold and it's late and... They don't feel like they belong and they don't feel like they've made any progress. And what they feel like is that they have smacked hard into a solid, uncompromising, unyielding wall of, I can't do this. This is really difficult. Everyone here is better, better at this than I am. And that is not, that and, and several other factors are not elements that are conducive to them maintaining a high degree of motivation or actually learning the skill. So roughly speaking, I would teach rope, and, and this is just a very broad overview, and I'll go into this in more detail once I've had a chance to put my notes on paper, but I would teach rope in a very, very different way. So fundamentally, I would teach everyone to tie and be tied, right? I would have a much greater emphasis on preconditioning the expectations of the experience, never leaving any of that to random chance. I would put a much greater emphasis on connecting before the rope, but that would come after, the teaching of that would come after the, the raw technical skills. And the way that I would teach those is radically different. So just pretend that I don't give a literal rat fuck about dogma in rope, because that would be pretty accurate. <clears throat> and try to listen to how I would teach it. So what I would do is I would teach them something that is absurdly simple. Something that is so simple that they cannot possibly fail at it. You want to give them several, a succession of early wins. You do not want them to come along and be taught a tie that is complicated and very easy, in my opinion, to get slightly wrong, which totally defeats the whole purpose of the tie, which is to create a non-constricting loop that can support a load for a single column tie, right? It's very simple to, to malform that knot in a number of different ways that make it unable to bear a load. So basically, it's like if you roll a dice, you've got five chances to get it wrong. 
and one chance to get it right. And you're giving them something that has that ratio, right? You want to give them something to begin with that is super, super simple, right? That they cannot possibly fail at. And then you want to praise the fuck out of them. And then you want to give them something slightly, slightly different, but basically the same thing, right? So, start with something that's much simpler than a, simple, than a single column tie, right? I'm not sure exactly what I would start with, but the first thing that comes to mind is a chest harness. And you might think, oh my God, a chest harness is so complicated. No, it's so easy, right? But it gives you something that is so flexible and modular, right? And, and again, this idea of modularity, but, but also with these implicit inbuilt connections. So let's look at the way Darth Bane learned lightsaber dueling, right? He took a system where people would execute what were the effective equivalent of katas, right? in a karate sequence. So for those of you that are not familiar with kata, it's basically a series of moves that kind of chain logically from one to another. The problem is you learn the kata, but your brain also unconsciously learns the precursor and the successor to it. So when Mr. Miyagi does this in the Karate Kid movie, the original Karate Kid movie, not the remake with um, Will Smith's son, which was terrible, they, they totally butchered the entire character of Mr. Miyagi. It just, it was absurd. Anyway, the original and the series. And if you haven't seen Cobra Kai, the television show, 1000% recommend. It's fucking amazing, right? But in the original, he doesn't teach Carter's to begin with. He teaches individual moves because like how people learn lines for the theater, they learn the lines that come just before their lines, then their lines, and then they basically forget what happens after that. What they're looking for is the precursor. And if the precursor to a move is that you've already performed another move that's completely unrelated to anything that's going on right now, i.e. a kata, you are, I'm trying not to be harsh here. So I, I try very hard not to be harsh, but... <sighs> You are doing it in a very inefficient and stupid way, right? For example, as a con so what you're basically doing with a cutter is like 14 moves, as an example. You start, you do the second move, then the third move, and they all flow from one to the other, absolutely, right? But if you ask someone what the ninth move in that sequence is, they probably wouldn't know, or the 10th move, because they don't know, the, the referencing system doesn't order properly because they don't know what they're doing consciously. The whole point of it is to train it in unconsciously, but you're not training three moves that lead to a submission or three moves that lead to a knockout punch or three moves that lead to an improvement in your position. You're training 14 moves that look really good and kind of flow together, right? It's, it's a way of doing it, but they're fumbling around the edges. They're, they're, their questing fingers have searched and found part of the truth, but they're, they're tippy-toeing around the edges of, of something much larger and much, much grander. It's the same with rope, right? You see, you, you see people teach a tie, and then they make it feel within the person who is doing the tying like it's the most complicated thing in the world, right? There's no fun in these classes. And I'm sure that someone out there will be sitting on their, you know, ass going, oh, well, he's wrong about that. Fantastic. Take everything that I've taught you in this lesson and... Incorporate everything that you want and then 
discard the things that you don't want, and then add in what is uniquely your own, because fuck knows we could use a lot more add in what is uniquely your own when it comes to rope teaching, right? The, in my view, the, God, I'm being so nice today, fuck. I think that the way that rope teach is taught is almost designed, it is identical in its effect as if it were designed to minimize the spread of rope and to place it on this pedestal of it is impossibly difficult to learn and it basically comes down to maintaining an income stream for a handful of people that are qualified to teach at that high level, right? Cool, hate me if you want to, I don't give a shit. But if you're doing this as a career and you have a severe financial investment in maintaining your source of income, of course that's going to sway how you teach, right? I would like to see things taught in a very different way. But I also think that restricting access to information, restricting access to techniques, and restricting access to good instruction is one of the ways that people control information. And while I'm not as much of a radical as I was in my younger days, where I was like, oh, you know, information wants to be free. I'm like, some information, you have to charge for it because of those overhead costs. I, I get that, right? But the point here is that that restriction of information doesn't necessarily guarantee accurate reproduction of these techniques to begin with, right? But a big part of the driver is, you know, you have to learn how to do it right, quote unquote, do it right before I can tell you the next technique. I'm like, yeah, okay, but that's just fucking dumb. And it's designed to prevent the inaccurate propagation of these techniques, but it's probably the most ineffective technique for preventing inaccurate propagation, right? People are going to want to do this shit anyway. Whether they learn the super secret juju masters of Kamchatka's, you know, sevenfold path, or whether they just like watch a bunch of YouTube videos, the desire is there. The instruction, therefore, morally, must be provided in some way that is a bit more accessible than just you can travel to Japan if you want to learn more. Like, yes, you can travel to Japan. Not everyone can, though. The point is, I'm sure there'll be lots of people, as I seem to have sort of addressed a number of issues, that will have some criticisms of what I'm saying today. And I would like to state unequivocally and, and absolutely that I do not care. If you're not specifically, and if you are a rope instructor and you're not specifically doing all of these things, that's fine. But I have seen this over and over and over again. So I'm sharing what I know so that everybody else can suck less. And maybe we can all have more fun. Not maybe. If we do things the way that I am describing, I think everyone will have a lot more fun. But, you know, you're going to get that as a natural extension of not actively aggressively driving away people who come into this with enthusiasm and hopefulness and a desire to learn and then like crushing those people under the weight of centuries of bullshit until everybody who is passionate about, I mean, it's, it's about 70% of my criticisms of the way that rope is taught map perfectly onto my criticisms of the traditional education system, right? And if you haven't read it yet, there's a, an excellent essay by a man called The Seven Lesson School Teacher. Uh, the, the person who wrote it is John Taylor Gatto, J-O-H-N, 
T-A-Y-L-O-R-G-A-T-T-O. Read that, covers a lot of it. But basically, dogma is generally useless and just impedes the flow of learning. So, don't start by teaching them a single thing which doesn't map onto something else. Start by teaching them something that does map onto other things and has inherent usefulness. Do you know what a single column tie is useful for by itself? Oh, well, you know, the example they always give is you can like tie someone's ankle or you can tie their wrist and lead them around. I'm like, you know how else you can tie their hand? You can grab their hand and move them around. It doesn't allow you to do anything that you couldn't do without having done it. It is entirely superfluous. It's fucking dumb. Right? Oh, now you can restrain someone's wrist. You know what else you could do? You could teach them a fucking bowline. That is a really useful knot, right? <laughs> like, learn how to tie a bowline without using the end of the rope. Now you've got something useful. Fuck's sake. Don't teach them something that has no immediate application. Give them a super simple win, right? And then teach them something that they can immediately use. And even very complex chest harnesses can be broken down into a series of steps. However, you should be walking this person through it step by step, and it should never have more than a handful of steps, right? It should be big and clear and obvious what you're doing. And it should be a technique that has a huge um, accounting for failure. So if you do it totally wrong, it should still mostly work safely, right? And a chest harness is going to do that. As long as you don't constrict the wrist too much, right? Or the, the veins that are on the inside of the upper arm, which is kind of hard to do if their arms are behind their back and the rope goes around their arm. Like, it's hard to fuck that up. Don't give them something that is hyper um, sensitive to even small deviations in technique. Give them something that is retard-proof. Give them something that is super simple, right? And teach them in a way that, that you walk them through the step. So you have them do one thing and then stop. One thing and then stop. One thing and then stop. Right? And the first thing they should learn is something that is useful. Right? I personally would start with a chest harness. Why? Because it looks fucking hot. And it's useful. Now you've got their arms behind their back. That's something that you can't do just by, I don't know, holding them there, right? A single column tie does nothing. But a chest harness that constricts, that, that not, not constricts, sorry, that, that binds or makes them still unable to use their arms, that's useful, right? And it's very, very simple to teach. That's what I would teach them first. A super simple chest harness. Like, however simple you think this needs to be to all the rope educators listening to this, simpler than that. Phenomenally simple, right? And then have that person tie and be tied. Now, my personal preference is for a three-person model where you have one person tying somebody, one person being tied and one person observing who will then be tested at the end of their observation period 
on what it is they noticed that person was doing right. And we use basic operant conditioning techniques like successive approximation, positive reinforcement. Don't get your knickers in a twist about positive reinforcement. It's not that complicated. And, and breaking everything down. But specifically, we employ the tag teach principles, which you can find in more detail on their website, T-A-G-T-E-A-C-H. Um, they have a super fundamentals course there that's free and is extremely good. That's what I would recommend people use, right? So you break this stuff down into extremely small chunks. You create tag points for it. You have them teach each other that way. It's a little bit more complicated because you're not just instructing them. You have to actually learn how to teach them, how to teach themselves, and then you have to teach them. But uh, massively more effective. So I would use, if I was doing it from scratch, if I was teaching a rope class from scratch, what I would do is I would immediately show somebody a two minute or less demonstration of something that looks really fucking cool that is, that is designed to be inspiring to people, right? Now, obviously rope takes time. So if I was doing this, and again, just, just assume that for the next part of this, I'm gonna be saying if it was me or if I was doing this or this is how I would do it, right? Just imagine that I'm prefacing all of my sentences with that. I would actually pre-tie somebody. I would tie somebody up and then I would begin the class and then I would basically just pull the rope, hoist her off the ground, have her smiling and glorious and beautiful and happy and exultant and free and perfect in every way, physically and emotionally and spiritually. And then lower her down and have someone else untie her and then teach the class. A lot of rope classes are like, hi, hey, how are you? Everybody here now? Ooh, awkward stuff. Okay, let's talk about safety for 45 minutes. How do you lose a class in one step? Don't give them a reason at the start for them to continue it, right? Don't give them something that is inspirational, that is designed to inspire them. Right? One day, you can do this. One day, you can have a girl this fuckable dangling from the ceiling and all she will want to do is bang you. That's essentially what you're... What you, you need to present. I know a bunch of people out there going, Oh my God, rope isn't about sex. Fuck off. We get it. Go whine somewhere else. But the point of this is you have to show them something that is very attractive to new people. Something that is going to inspire them, right? Something that, something that is both masterful and recognizable as difficult. However, something that is crucially within their reach. If they are committed to this, if they come to their classes, if they practice, then one day they can be the person that has this and that can do that and has all of the things that come with that, like the respect and the incredible fuckable, incredibly fuckable pole dancing yoga doing girlfriend. Like that's, you know, that is the reason that people keep coming back to this stuff from what I can tell. They want to tie people, right? So I would start that class by having someone that is pretty, but not unapproachably attractive, be tied before the class, pull a rope, hoist her up, show everyone what you can do, and then have someone else untie her so that then you can 
teach the class, but you need to inspire people right off the bat, right? I've been to about a dozen different rope classes with a particular emphasis on beginners classes. And the first thing they do is talk about safety, right? That's really important. Well done. Fantastic. Good for you. Get a gold star, right? I bet that was exactly what someone else's teaching outline told you to do. Now, obviously, safety is really important, but that's not what I would cover first. I would cover making them actually want to do this first. Present this in a way that makes it seem, because it actually is, not that hard to do. Give them something that is immediately useful to them so that they can then use that. Something You want them walking out the door with a single thing that they are perfectly confident doing. And part of that teaches them, is about teaching them how to handle it when things don't go perfectly. And by that, I don't mean just sitting there and going, well, everybody, how do we handle things when things don't go perfectly? Let's have a conversation about it. Well, we communicate more. Fucking fuck. Okay, how do we communicate more? What exact words do we say? What are the prerequisites required for accurate communication? What does my partner need to have in order for them to even be able to hear me trying to communicate with them better? Fucking dumb. So many people are like, oh, you know, we communicate better. And they accept that as an answer when it's not even the beginnings of the beginnings of the beginnings of an answer. And it's not even the right answer, to be honest. So I would teach them in that first lesson, crucially, I would teach them a chest harness. I would have them tie other people. I would have them be tied by other people. And I would have them observe and crucially the observer is both tested on their retention of the knowledge of the core steps, which again should be massively simplified, right? And then you can either incorporate tag teach front like frameworks into that of, of like having tag points or using a clicker, or you can just have verbal instructions that, that sort of operate along those rough lines, right? You probably won't need a specific marker signal. What I would start with is basically a super simple outline, basically half a page that describes, and by half a page, I don't mean half a page of text, I mean like half a page of dot points, that describe the major steps of the chest harness. And then in each sentence, there's a word that acts as a mental key for that step in the process. So let's imagine, for example, that we would be like, um, okay, the first step to do is to ask someone to be tied. Right, And then in that sentence, the word ask is in bold and underlined because the step that you... So I hope everyone's familiar with CPR. Um, you have the doctor ABCD thing, and now it's doctors ABCD. But everyone knows what the D stands for. And the R stands danger, response, airway, breathing, circulation. Right, And there used to be defibrillator, I think, at the end. But um, I think I might have moved the order around recently. They're always tweaking it. But it's basically danger, response, airway, defibrillator, everything else now, I think. But don't quote me on that order because I'm not a emergency medicine specialist. But look it up if you haven't in a while. It's a good opportunity to refresh your memory, right? But people remember that because of the letters, right? So you do the same thing, not necessarily with the letters. I think singular words that capture the gist of a sentence, the essence of a sentence, are much more effective. So I would have a half-page handout on paper that I would hand out to people, right? But I would bring it up on the whiteboard first in front of everybody, clear enough that everyone can see it from everywhere in the, in the room, right? So it would be a series of words, like, stacked vertically on top of each other. 
describing the major steps. So like, ask, would you like to be tied? Fantastic. Yes. Okay. Then wrists. Okay. The wrists go behind the back. You don't necessarily have to say that to them every single time, but on their half page handout, the extended version of that should be, you know, take the wrist, twist them, twist them so the palms are facing one another, place them behind the back or place them behind the back and then twist them so the palms are facing one another, right? So the shorter, easier to remember version becomes ask wrists, right? And then it becomes, you know, shoulders. So you start by putting a loop around the wrists, right? You tie that off so it's a non-constricting loop. And then you loop the rope around their shoulder and come back down again, shoulders. So it becomes ask, wrists, shoulders, right? And then later on, you can incorporate elements like have them close their eyes. That's a very important step. I'll talk about that more in the class on maximizing rope with hypnosis. But that's how I would teach this class, right? So. I would teach them, I would make the focus of the entire first class a simple chest harness, super simple. Simpler than whatever you're thinking of. Simpler than that. Don't go with a diamond harness because it's really hard to do overclothing. Someone has to be naked, which is kind of a high barrier if you're not tying other people that are comfortable being naked in a public place. So that's not really gonna work, right? You can toss that shit in at the end if you want like an extra thing for variety, but I would do that as like a five minute thing at the end and just kind of demonstrate it, right? But even then, as I'm thinking about it now, that's not really relevant. You want them to focus on the one thing that they're learning. And then I would have the entry to the class specifically in person open only to couples. Because it evolves, it, it solves a lot of problems. It puts a lot of the responsibility for solving those problems less on the server and more on the client, if you're familiar with that parlous. So it puts a lot of the response, like they have to find a partner, that person has to be comfortable being tied by them, that person has to be comfortable tying them. Now, this is the other thing that will, that will frustrate a lot of people. You don't get, so if this is your first night at Fight Club, you have to fight, right? If you're a person who goes, oh no, I'm just a bunny. Like, oh my God, I'm just such a bunny. Like, oh my God. Like, I don't really want to tie anybody because I'm not really a dominant. That's not an acceptable answer. You are not here to learn how to be tied only. You are here to learn how to tie your partner. But most importantly, they, your partner, is here to learn how to also be tied. They need to understand experientially. So there's a difference between intellectual understanding and replace it with this audio clip. Less useful. They are there to learn how to tie you. And there is a difference between an intellectual understanding of a topic and an experiential understanding of a topic. So an intellectual understanding is when you know it in your head, right? When you, when you know in your head that everything is going to be okay, but you don't truly believe that. And then an experiential understanding is knowing it in your body, knowing it in your heart, having experienced that everything is going to be okay and you know that it's going to be okay. You have faith, you have certainty or a very high degree of certainty, right? That's the difference between an intellectual understanding and an experiential understanding. Very important here because a lot of people who have tied other people 
have an intellectual understanding of what it's like to be tired, but not an experiential one. Now, we're going to get into a different topic here very briefly where I'm going to talk about an episode that I haven't produced yet, which I'm going to, on the fact that the dominant and, and submission are basically inaccurate and mostly irrelevant labels. In fact, they're much more useless than they are useful. But I don't necessarily think that it's necessary for someone to suck somebody's dick in order to have to experience what it's like to have their dick sucked, necessarily. One of the issues I have with um, the leather community, quote-unquote community, is that they have a strong ideological disagreement with broader kink in that it used to be that you, back in the original days of it being basically all gay men, um, you would learn how to do things and have things done to you because you were having it, you were having the experience with the person who was sexually attracted to you or sexually attractive to you or the sex that was attractive to you. And so there's no like moral issue there with you doing something that's against your personal morality, right? Because you're doing something that is not very, well, it's not against your personal morality. However, a lot of submissives, and I'll talk about this in a different episode, um, have this idea that like them tying their partner up is like a dominant act and they're not a dominant. Therefore, they can't tie that person ever. And that's absolute fucking nonsense. And I will explain why in more detail with much more ranting in that episode on how dominance and submission are basically useless, constraining labels that don't serve any actual practical purpose. But... Suffice to say, if your excuse for not tying your partner because they are your dominant and you're their submissive is, I don't feel like it, that's not a real excuse, right? You're capable of doing it. You are sexually attracted to this person. They are sexually attracted to you. You are not being forced to cross a significant moral boundary, right? Like engaging in sex with someone that you're not that is of the sex that you're not sexually attracted to, like you're not being forced into some sort of weird bisexual scenario by you tying them up. You're not crossing any moral lines. The idea of like, I don't feel like tying my partner up. It's not an excuse. It's not a real one. It's not a valid excuse. You must, if this is your first night of fight club, you have to fight. If this is your class and you're learning, you don't get to tap out of this. You have to learn how to do this. It's not for you. It's mostly for the person being tied in this case, the dominant who probably has very little experience of experiencing what it's like to be tied, right? And I think it's very important for them not necessarily to have the exact experience that they've given you, although we're going to be using the same tie, but for them to have the understanding that this is real and it has these biochemical effects. And that's the difference, crucially, between having an intellectual understanding of something and an experiential understanding of it, is they can, they can have watched you be tied hundreds of times, but they've never experienced being tied. And once they have experienced that, they will have a kind of physiological benchmark where 
they are able to drop much more deeply into being able to intensely feel what it is they are tying you for and what it is that you feel while you're being tied to a much greater degree. And it will massively expand the intensity of your rope experiences as both the person receiving it and as the person doing the tying. So to loop back through and summarize, start with a very inspiring demonstration that is not designed to overawe people, but it is designed to give them a singular and very approachable vision of what is possible once they continue learning the skills, the specific skills that you are teaching them, right? So if you're running this as part of an introductory class, this is how I would do it. I would do it over four weeks. I would make the classes, let's call it an hour, but I would encourage people to stay after the class to practice with their partner. And I would, I would strongly recommend this as an important thing. You know, not just to practice tying, but to also practice being tied. So, you know, and you can stay for another hour after the class, and it's strongly recommended that you do. Then I would begin with a demonstration of something inspiring that is simple, takes less than two or three minutes, and is designed to be something that is not absurdly, insanely, you know, I've seen some weird shit, man. I've seen stuff that would obviously take someone like 10 years and a calculator to work out. And that's not what you want to show a new person. You want to show them something that is inspiring to them, right? Something beautiful. So I wouldn't use the most physically attractive girl you possibly have who looks unapproachable, like some sort of ice queen bitch goddess. I would use a normal girl. An attractive, I would use an 8 out of 10, not a 12 out of 10, right? I would present that in a way that is approachable to them. I'm not sure exactly what tie I would use, but probably a combination of different things, and then I'd combine them together at the end. So probably someone with a chest harness, and then a leg harness, and then maybe a suspension that builds from both of those things, okay? Kind of designing a whole curriculum in my head as I'm going along in real time, so... But um, four weeks is a good length for a class. Eight weeks is a long commitment for people. And they can always do the same class twice if they need to you know, work on that. I would offer a, a discount price if they uh, wanted to retake the class. Uh, I would, it would be a, like a 75% discount. But I, I guess I would always put them on, also put them on a waiting list or... Um, run a separate class for them so that I could make sure that their presence there retaking the class wouldn't prevent other new people from attending. So let's say you have a finite class size of five couples, 10 people. Um, then if that's the case, I'd probably run two classes in an evening, two separate classes for people rather than letting them take up all that space in the uh, class. You want to help new, new people come in. So, then, immediate inspiration, right? This is the cool thing that you will be able to do at the end. Show it to them. Let them feel it. Make them feel it, right? Then, immediately teach them a chest harness. Something very simple, right? And then break it down into a series of very small steps 
which have like a one sentence description of each step, but then a keyword that you can use to memorize the actual step, right? And then you lead them through that and you understand this as a process. Now, later on you can talk about safety and you will, right? But that's a huge conversation that most people also get completely wrong. Um, oh my God, I had to go to this lecture once. Not had to, I went to this lecture on flogging. <laughs> and it was just so bad. Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> it was, it was like, okay. So uh, brief side, side tour. Let's imagine that there's a list of 30 locations on the body and let's say 15 of them you can safely flog, right? And then let's say 15 of them you can't. And there's varying degrees of unsafety, but they're all kind of unsafe. So like, for example, one of them might be someone's face. You want to flog someone's face. Well, not with the wrong materials, but you know what I mean? That, that's a distinction that you would teach people later on. And so this guy was like, okay, without any kind of assistive aid, he's basically like, okay, this is my demo girl. And, you know, he's like, you can flog this part of her and this part of her and this part of her. And he just goes through the whole list. When I was a kid, we had to give a presentation. I still remember this. We had to give a presentation on, on a particular kind of street drug. And there was this one kid in the class that had put like 15 slides together. And about 12 of those slides were just a giant listing of the street names for this drug. Right? I think he did MDMA. And there were just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of like slang terms from around the world that he'd padded out his slideshow with. And the whole thing was only supposed to be three or four slides. And it was just like a giant chunk of information that no, con no one could possibly remember and their brain just stops working. Safety lectures are basically the same thing. This guy was like, here's a list of like 30 things. Remember all of them. And everyone's like, uh, and it just blurs into one another after a short period of time. And no one really did. How I would have taught that is I would have used a, a black marker to draw on her visually the parts that you could hit with a flogger, right? And then had her naked in front of the class and then be like, okay, this and this and this, yes. Everything else, no. Make sense? Super easy, done in two seconds, right? Much, much more visually distinctive. Same thing with this, short summary, a series of words that you can memorize in order that is a key that unlocks the memory of the longer description, which they have in writing for consistency on a piece of paper, but also, you know, it'll, the words, the, the keywords will be up on the, the board or the, I don't know what those things are called. When you have like an A3 size piece of paper in front of a boardroom and it's like a, on a flippy easel and you pull the paper over like an artist, you know what I mean? Like that. Teach them a chest harness, run all the way through that, right? And then basically for safety, it's don't do anything except what you've done today. You don't need to spend 45 minutes out of your hour going, well, you know, there are major blood vessels in the wrists and in the inside of the upper arm and in the inside of the upper thigh and in the neck. And oh my God, if you ever tie someone's neck, you will fucking die. Like they'll die, you'll die. Everyone in a two mile radius will instantly drop dead. You know, we get it, dude, fucking, we, we, we get it, right? Don't worry about teaching them that way, right? Say, do these things and it will be extremely hard for you to hurt somebody. 
and only these things, and it'll be extremely hard for you to hurt somebody. Follow the description here, right? And then what you do to finish the class, now that they've had several experiences of this class going well, and, and this description is not entirely complete, I'm making this all up as I go along right now, but uh, I'll give it some more thought and try to come up with an outline that I can then distribute to rope educators or put in the resources folder so that people can, you know, get a grip on all the stuff that I'm talking about and why it's important and uh, how to make their own classes better and not shit. And then I would finish the last 15 minutes of the class, 15 minutes, not 50, the last 15 minutes of the class with three or two or three examples of how to handle it when it goes wrong. So this is another topic worth opening up. There are lots of amazing processes that work extremely well if their prerequisites and the, you know, the steps are followed in order, right? And yet almost no one that I've ever spoken to ever, and certainly no one that I've ever seen presenting a class has ever covered in real time demonstrations that are worked through alongside the class, what to do if something goes wrong. The absolute best that I've ever seen, and by the way, this is nowhere near what I would consider to be the unacceptable minimum standard. This is just the best that I've seen, was some idiot having a five minute half-assed conversation about like, what happens if she has a panic attack? And he's like, well, I guess you would untie her. And then you would do your standard aftercare. And I'm like, okay. You know what would be really cool if you had everybody here in this class paying total attention to you, the rope guru, is if you like role played that, you know, if you use this time rather than having us all sit around you in a circle, stroking your ego and jerking you off to actually demonstrate how we would do this, not just to us, but I mean, that, that's, that would be the next level up. So demonstrate it as part of the curriculum intentionally, not just as an afterthought because someone happened to ask you the right question this week and otherwise you wouldn't have even broached the topic, but have the class work through role play examples, both as the person, you know, having the panic attack or think about the most statistically likely and statistically serious things that could possibly happen, right? So, I like the idea, as I think of it now, of balls of yarn, right? So, what you could do is you could do that same familiar pattern of three people, one person doing it, one person watching, one person having it done to them, and do the tie perfectly, but with yarn, right? And then you have the person who's being tied role play that they have had a heart attack, right? Think about it statistically. The, the, the scenario that you want to employ is going to be the worst possible thing that could happen and Another one, so you will always do two or three, but never just the one. Uh, you would do the worst possible thing that can possibly happen, and then you would do something much less serious that is statistically much more likely to happen, right? The reason for this is psychological. If you can handle the worst possible thing that can possibly happen, then by definition, you can handle anything that's less intense or serious than that much more easily. Right? If you can lift 100 kilos at maximum effort, then you can lift 
70 kilos with a lot less than maximum effort. You can lift 10 kilos all the time. You can just do it all day, right? So you teach them how to handle the worst case scenario. This person is, let's say hypothetically, having a heart attack and they're in the rope, they're non-responsive, their head is slumped forward, their airway is impinged, right? How do you do it? Well, you can't cut the rope. Actually, I'll, I'll paraphrase that. You can cut the rope, but if you were to go through like an entire class worth of rope, it would be very expensive. So if you were doing this, what I would do is I would either use like balls of yarn or string and have them tie their partner up and then just cut through the string the way that they would cut through the rope. But for the most realistic thing, I would use cheap as fuck sash cord from Bunnings. Um, you can get like six millimeter diameter lengths of it in 20 meters for, I don't know, five or six Australian dollars or whatever the European equivalent of that would be. Not expensive, right? But when it comes to rehearsing these things, you want, the last thing you want people in this particular example thinking about is like how much this rope cost me to hand order from some Tibetan monk who spent six months preparing it. You don't want them thinking about that. You want them just sliding that pair of safety shears through like butter, getting it perfectly right, and then thinking about nothing else but putting that person in the recovery position and going into their CPR, right? And that's, I guess, you know, would be a good place to, I guess at the start of the class, you point out like, this is my classroom and that's the defibrillator over there on the wall. And if anyone needs that, just grab it, right? But maybe not the best thing to mention at the front of the class. People will start to think, why are you mentioning this? Did someone have a heart attack recently? Right? So that's how I would do it. Think of a really intense scenario, a really serious scenario, like they're having a severe panic attack, right? And then make the role play of that scenario as realistic as you possibly can, right? So don't like have them start out the room, then come in, have them like be tying this person and have this person just like have a heart attack, right? Coach them on how to do it. Demonstrate it if you want to, right? Give them some words to say, give them a script, give them simple, clear, defined words. I'm having a heart attack. My face is going like, they don't have to like accurately describe the symptoms of a heart attack, but they should respond as though they are having a heart attack physiologically. So they should be confused. They should be extremely panicky, right? They should need to be untied extremely quickly. And so that's when you teach people how to go through the rope with your safety shears. You're like, this is the rope tie. This is how you do it perfectly. And this is how you untie it in two seconds with a pair of safety scissors. Right? And then you have them actually do that. Depending on the budget that you have for the class, I would either use bricklayer's string, which is like brightly colored in Australia. Fantastic, the bright pink stuff's great. Um, it's very, very cheap because it's kind of designed to be disposable and you can get, you know, 50 minute lengths for very, very cheap. And you basically just make up a super simple chest harness with the rope and then you role play it as realistic as possible. Or you can use brightly colored yarn that might be a bit more expensive. Or if you're going for maximum realism, what I would do if I was teaching the class is have a piece of sash cord from Bunnings. Um, I think it really only comes in white, but bright colors are, are better for anchoring things in people's memories. And then I would tie this person, although if they were in clothes during the class and not naked, then the white would stand out against the colors of their clothes better. So that works too.
but you basically want to have this reenactment be as realistic as possible, right? So that's what I would do. I would I would use the most realistic tool. I wouldn't use like $600 a foot special rope. I would use rope of the equivalent toughness and thickness because that's what we're talking about here. Or at least close enough that it, that it provides a reasonable analog. And then move them through that. This is the worst possible thing that can happen to you. And you just handled it, right? And And just to clarify, what I would have them do is go through every step of that process, right? And show you that they can get it right. So they have to cut the rope off. They have to comfort this person maybe, but the comforting is not that important. They have to cut the rope off, right? Then they put that person in the recovery position, then they call an ambulance, right? And they have to give that person the accurate address of the studio that you're tying in, right? And a scripted description of what, this, what has happened to this person. The, the, there is a huge power in scripts. I'm a massive fan of scripts. I think they work extremely well. Now, every hypnotherapist and hypnokink enthusiast out there is going, oh my God, but I don't care. Uh, I'll justify that assertion in another episode. But give them a word-for-word -word script. Tell them exactly what words to say. No improv, no go with your feelings. It's hi. Blah, 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 blah. My address is blah, 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 blah. I will stay on the phone, right? Role play it exactly as you would in an actual disaster scenario because anything less than that is insufficient. Now, now you've taught them how to handle like the worst case scenario. You know, it's okay for your class to go to like an hour and 20 minutes. I personally wouldn't put a break in the middle I would teach them the chest harness and then I would do the rehearsal of like what happens if things go wrong and then I would finish up. Um, breaks in the middle are, yeah, they're a separate topic, but they, I would use that if the class was going to be a two hour class. I'd have the break be like 10 or 15 minutes and I would have the, the break indicate a tonal shift within the class. So before lunch, we're doing chest harnesses. After lunch, we're tying the legs you know, or something different like that. But for a class, for an introductory class, I would probably go for an hour and however you can get it down to so that you can teach a chest harness and do at least two rehearsals of bad things happening comfortably. And then people can stay after class for another hour and tie with each other. There's a different way, and I must, I will have to go into more detail about that at some point because if you give people permission to leave like that, most people will begin to leave and then other people will just follow their example. So there's ways that you can structure that to encourage people to stay longer and practice when they have the benefit of your supervision. In that case, what you do is you have like, well, actually, I've just realized I've described three exercise with two. So in an ideal scenario, I would normally have three people, tying, being tied, observer. However, for the beginner class, given the simplicity of the tie, I would probably eliminate the observer role. And, and given that you want people to come as a couple, because if they can come as a couple, it solves a lot of problems for you right before the class starts. So I would have them tie and then be tied and eliminate the observer role. Unless you can, yeah. I mean, if you have a, a class person there, like if you have enough assistance, or if you have assistance dropping in and out of each, of each tie, like they can watch for a bit and then move on. Then that's how I would do that. 
but in the more intermediate and advanced stuff, I would always do a three. So I would always have someone observing, someone tying, someone being tied. And then the observer is tested on their retention of the material and given the responsibility of then teaching that material to the person who is going to do the tie next, who must not be the observer. So it would be, if you were doing it in a three, it'd be one person watching, one person being tied, one person observing. Then at the end of it, the observer would be tested on their retention of the process, specifically the order of the keywords. I guess any relevant safety information as well, depending on the intensity of the tie. And then the observer would teach it to the other person and then the roles shift around. I hope that makes sense. So, and then you would teach them at the end of this class. So you've got the rope harness. We haven't talked about safety in this class because you don't want them to worry about that stuff yet. You want them to just not tie the neck, right? Pretty much everything else can be recovered from in a reasonable time frame, right? So if, if I was going to do safety, I would teach it after the, net, the chest harness and it would just be don't tie the neck and keep an eye on tingling in the fingertips, right? Because you're not teaching them to go outside the realms of what you've taught them today. So you don't need to give them the full smack in your face safety lecture. You can just tell them the one or two things that they shouldn't do. Preferably the one thing that they shouldn't do. Just don't tie the neck. People have a lot more, people tend to re remember things easier if it's just the one thing. If it's two things, retention's a little bit harder for them. So I like to make it as easy as possible. Then I would run through a scenario of less intensity, like I'm halfway through being tied and I've changed my mind and I really don't want to be tied anymore. And how do I handle this? So this I would work through word for word, you know, the script of like how you would communicate with this person, how you would have them communicate back to you and then wrap that up and then conclude the class. I know that's not a huge amount of detail there, but I'll probably end up doing another episode on this where I'll go into like the whole thing in more detail. So keep an eye out for that in the podcast and the resources folder. And of course, obligatory shout out, you can find the website at thewordsmithspeaks.com, T-H-E-W-O-R-D-S-M-I-T-H-S-P-E-A-K-S.com where you can also find my contact information if you'd like to email me about anything at all or message me on Telegram. That's, that's usually what I prefer. It's easier for me to send an auditory reply. So then I would give people a half page handout that describes the steps of the process in detail, links them to my website or where they can find more information about this, but not, I've got this friend, he's a great guy. But someone will ask him a very simple question about a very simple topic, and then he will spend the next hour and a half outlining the exact process of how to become someone that knows nothing about how to ride a horse to someone who wants to become a professional Olympic-grade show jumper. And it's just too much information. So don't dump intermediate or advanced resources on people at the beginning. If you're going to recommend anything, recommend one or two things for further exploration, right? and tell people to constrain their explorations to that until you've taught them more things in your next class. What they will walk out of this class with, class with is 
the ability to confidently tie a chest harness that can then be used practically for amazingly good sex or that they can then build on in further classes. But you've given them a single concrete thing that they can do extremely competently. More importantly, you've given them several things that are usually missing from someone's first experience with a rope class, which is confidence, certainty, the internalized belief that this is actually not crushingly difficult, and it doesn't actually take several years to master this stuff. It's just that it's being taught in a really inefficient way and that they can do this. They walk out of it feeling motivated, positive, open. You've got that positive momentum going. There's a whole bunch of other stuff. It's just classic operant conditioning principles applied to restructuring how you teach rope. Now, I haven't really talked much about emotions and preconditioning. I think I'll have to cover those in more detail in my next iteration of this idea. Um, and if anyone looks up the structure of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Blue Belt certification, they will see exactly what my ultimate vision for this rope curriculum would look like. Simple introductions, specifically the flowchart that describes the pathway of a fight. So simple introductions, simple mid-ties, and then simple conclusion ties. And then you can basically loop through this endlessly in this glorious, perfect flow that is a representation of your unconscious mastery. Now, to deal with that whole conscious incompetence, unconscious incompetence thing, I've developed a much better version of this, which you can find in the episode called The Four Stages Model of Training a Slave Girl. It's a massive improvement on that. Unconscious competence, unconscious, blah, 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 stupid. Particularly for people who have English not as their first language. It's a very subtle distinction with that prefix in. Um, that people have a lot of difficulty understanding, apparently. So I needed to replace that. I outline all of this in the other episode, but go and listen to that. It's a very, very good model for this. But yes, basically teach connections immediate and following so that someone can start with a chest harness and then move to a hair harness and then move to a leg harness and then a suspension and then back off the suspension and then retie the legs in a different way and then retie the arms in a different way and then tie one eye and it becomes this effortless unconscious flow that requires no conscious thought at all because you have so deeply internalized not just the skills that you've been taught but the way that you've been taught them the way that they connect naturally to each other there's, I forget what the acronym is, but if you look at each of the modules in the Blue Belt curriculum, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu one that I talked about before, um, it's, I think it's the RDL drills at the end. I'm not sure, it's been a little while since I looked at it, but basically you start from a variety of openings, as in we might be standing, she might be seated, I might be standing over her, there might be a chair that I can tie her to, you start from a variety of openings and then you execute a series of movements, or in this case, ties, to carry it through to a number of different conclusions. But that branching path interrelated short but modular model that is both a combat, I'm trying to explain it in my own way, but it's, it's hard to, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's hard to put it on words, but it's basically, in my mind, it's a combination of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Blue Belt certification, the way that Darth Bane teaches lightsaber dueling, and just, like, operant conditioning principles and philosophy. That is a rough summary of the surface level, developed completely in my head in real time, 
uh, of how I would teach a rope class so that it doesn't aggressively drive away people that are enthusiastic about rope, actively crush their desire to learn more and make them feel hopeless, overwhelmed, pathetic, incapable, incompetent, and instead has them feeling connected and skillful and enthusiastic and genuinely believing, because it is actually objectively true, that mastering rope is actually not that difficult. That it is not something that is beyond them or that requires a phenomenal investment of time or something unreasonable, like 10 years on a mountaintop, but that if they follow the process and they build on the stuff that they learn with you or with other people that teach the same way, then they will eventually be able to do all of the things that they want to do and feel, ultimately, all of the things that they want to feel. Powerful, in control, or helpless, submissive, weak, controlled, whatever it is they want to feel. At the end of the day, all of this stuff comes down to emotions. So yes, and I'll cover all of this stuff in more detail in another episode, but emotions and preconditioning the expectations of those emotions are very important. So, I hope you've enjoyed my Why Rope Teaching Sucks and How I Would Improve It episode. Um, it was originally intended to just be a rant about how rope teaching sucks, but obviously I, I dislike intensely people that just go, well, this is a problem, without actually providing you with a solution. So what you heard was me developing a solution in real time. Um, and I'm sure with a bit of thought, I can refine and improve that. Ultimately, I would like to produce a rope curriculum, but, uh, well, today was a very broad overview of how I would do it. There's probably a few little pieces missing, probably some refinements that I can easily make once I sit down and think about this after I've had a, another cup of tea and, uh, but if you've liked this or you haven't liked this, if you haven't liked this, make something better, right? Go and teach that. I don't care. If you have liked this or you have used this with your partner, then please feel free to get in touch. I always enjoy hearing from people that have used my work and that have questions, interesting questions about something they would actually like to do with it. Those are my favorite kinds of questions, but I usually enjoy receiving any kind of questions. So, thank you for your time.